see that you all are dressed up as yourselves. Very good. That's a good start. Happy Reformation. Did you know that today, oh, so Reformation Day, that's another one. Today is also, I, I, this is a real thing, uh, National Magic Day. Uh, it is also National World Cities Day. I don't know what that means. So, and also, this kind of makes sense. It's also Caramel Apple Day. So these are all things. So happy all those days to you. Uh, my name is Elliot. Um, what a joy, honor, and privilege to be here and share this time with you today. Uh, I, I'm super jazzed about this text because, um, yeah, like, like, like Tom mentioned, it's a, it's a well-known text. You know, we're unpacking this super well-known story, and I feel like it's gotten a lot more popular or a lot more well-known in the last few years, and this is the story of Jesus flipping tables. And, um, and like, some of us, like, we love this story. Like, we love it. Like, this is, like, the revolutionary Jesus, right? This is, like, you know, this, this is the Jesus that gets stuff done. This is the action hero Jesus, you know? Like, he, like, he, you know, sticks it to the man and, you know, and, you know, uh, speaks truth to power and all that stuff. Like, he doesn't care about what people think. He'll just, he'll just Hulk smash his way through a mosh pit, and this is how he gets stuff done. And, it, and this is, like, this story is so popular, like, I honestly don't think you have to be a Christian or, or grow up in the church to know this story. Like, I, I have a, like, one of my closest friends, we've known each other pretty much most of our lives. He's a Buddhist. One time he, he actually came, one summer he was gone all summer. We're like, where did he go? And it turned out he, he went to, he's a, he's a Buddhist monk, so he was actually, like, he came back with, like, no eyebrows and shape. And we're like, whoa. So he, he's one of my closest friends. He was the best man at my wedding. He reminds me of this story, Jesus Flipping Tables, about every other time we talk to each other. He's the one that's telling me about this. <laughs> like, I feel like, you know, like some Christians, like they might not know like the story of Zacchaeus, but they know this story, you know, like they love this story. Um, and there's even like internet memes about it. I think we have a couple images. Like there's like Jesus, the original table flipper. Um, and there's, oh, do we not, okay, not on screen. Oh, if it's, if, just imagine a uh, stick figure, Jesus. And, <laughs> Just Jesus doing this. Uh, and there's like this other one where it's like more of a classic picture. It's white Jesus with like white people all around. You know, it's like one of those paintings. Um, but it's like on the text it says, next time someone asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibility. So these are kind of the stuff that's out there. And people are like, we are just, I, I am drawn to this story. And it's seemingly growing in popularity, I think, because like the times that we kind of live in beckon it, right? Like socially, politically, even theologically, there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of division. And there's something about what Jesus does in this text that like gives us like a sense of purpose, maybe, like a sense of meaning. Maybe some, some of us identify with it. You know, like, like we want to do what Jesus is doing here. Maybe, but ultimately, I wonder if it just gives us a sense of hope that Jesus, this, he's the son of God, God in flesh, that he just is stand by and watch injustice. He's not apathetic about it. And I, in fact, he has some strong feelings about it and some strong reactions about it, and I'm totally here for it. So um, this is a pretty, like, loaded text. We have a lot to go over, so let's pray and let's go into it. Abba, Father, I, um, first of all, humbly I ask that you would um, check my heart. Um, I, um, I, I admit, sometimes on some Sundays I feel like I, uh, when I'm preaching, I feel like I, I just get through the text because I feel like I have to, but I pray against that. 
And I, I pray that for those of us who have heard this text or know of it, um, I pray that your spirit would breathe new life into it. I pray that it will come to life. And, and as Tom prayed earlier, I pray that um, there will be something about it holy and sacred as we engage in this text together. Um, so be with us now. Be with our hearts today. Help us to receive your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is, uh, this is a better one. The other one I saw was a stick figure one, but I guess I, I got this one. All right, cool. I like, he's like so casual about it. It's, it's like almost he's like walking by and he's like flipping it. Um, yeah, see, like all white people, right? Um, and so it's, it should be a little more brown, um, just letting you know. Historically, it should be a little more historically accurate. Um, anyway, so the context of what's happening there is chapter 11 in Mark. So if you have your Bible, feel free to um, bring it out. And here's, here's kind of like the background of what's happening. We are at the near end of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as king and lord with all this fanfare, and it's Passover time. So what that means is that in the minds of the Jewish people, they're thinking about their history, and they're thinking about specifically about the point of where they were liberated from Egypt. Right? They're slaves in Egypt for a really long time, for generations. And so naturally, as they're thinking about Passover and their liberation from Egypt, then naturally imagining and hoping for Jesus to bring a similar type of liberation from Rome. And so everyone, as Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, everyone is, 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 is expecting this big political showdown. So with that in mind, this is how this whole thing starts. Verses 12 through 14, and we'll focus on these verses first. So this is how this big showdown starts. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciple heard him say it. Now, um, thanks, Tom, for setting this up. That was a really good setup. Um, so everyone is like, everyone who saw Jesus marching or like triumphantly walking in Jerusalem is expecting this big political showdown. But first, the man's got to eat. So, so what, and so, um, it, actually, what's kind of anticlimactic about this whole thing? If you look at verse 11, the verse before that, so Jesus marches in, right? Like this whole triumphant entry, he, and he marches in, and he walks straight into the temple, and he gets to the temple, he's like, oh, it's late. And it literally says he looked around and he went back. So that's what happened. And so the next morning, Jesus wakes up and he's like, okay, let's go back. And on his way back, he's like, oh, man, I'm hungry. So that's what's happening. So, so far, this makes Jesus look like a chump. You know what I mean? And, like, and, because, and even more so because of what comes after that. Like, it looks like one of those, like, have you seen like one of those Snickers commercials? You know, like, acting like a diva? Hungry? You know, grab a Snickers, you know? And... It's like one of those kind of things, like, oh, man, Jesus is being a little diva. You know, he gets a little paraded, and now he thinks he owns the place, you know? And, um, and so, like, so he goes to this fig tree, and seeing that there's no fruit, Jesus curses this tree loud enough to be heard by all the disciples. Now, remember, like, there's, like, this, then, like, Jesus, like, we talked about last week, like, Jesus hung around, like, certain disciples more than others. So James and John, who we talked about last week, they were like, okay, Jesus, I, I, I think I get what you're talking about. I hear you. But some of them, like, 
like, like Thaddeus and Bartholomew was probably like, did I, what, what's going on? Like, you know, and then, and, and, and Thomas is probably like, I doubt that anything's going to happen to that tree. You know what I mean? But I mean, that's what it looks like to us in, in this text, right? To, to, to the modern reader. But when we look at the cultural context and even the agricultural context, things kind of like come alive a little bit more. See, because what's happening here is that culturally, the fig tree were grown around ancient Israel to be served as food for the poor. I mean, it's, it's really meant food for everyone. So it was available to everyone, specifically for people who weren't, didn't have the means to work. So it was meant for, it was, it was common nutrients for the poor. So it was meant to be a blessing for all people, even travelers going by Jerusalem. So that's what's going on culturally. But even more so agriculturally, this, this is how these, um, these specific fig trees in this area, this is how they work. In March, they start budding a little bit. So they start having a little bud. And then what happens in April, usually the leaves start coming up. So bud first, and then the leaves. And then when come May, it's harvest time, right? So what we see, this, the timing of it, we know this because it's Passover time. This is around April. So Jesus, knowing that it's Passover, April, I don't know what they called, they didn't call it April, but you know, like knowing that it's Passover time, Jesus approaches his fig tree knowing, expecting unripe fruit. So this goes to show how hungry Jesus was. He was so hungry, I'm like, I don't care how bitter it is, I don't care how hardened it is, I'm hungry, I'm just going to eat it. So he goes to this tree because he saw a lot of leaves on it. So Because remember, there's supposed to be buds first and then leaves. Because it's April, he goes to it, no buds, just leaves. And so... Like, this tree was, like, being uh, hypocritical, like, right? Because what it was showing on the outside wasn't actually what was happening on the inside. This tree was not going to be able to produce any fruit this year, but it was giving up vibes that it was going to be. So Jesus, actually, if you think, Jesus didn't curse the tree. He just called it as it is. It's like, this tree is, it is what it is. It's barren. He seals its fate. And now that's the setup. This is the context for the temple. Verses 15 to 18. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the table, uh, temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but... You have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So people were expecting the day before, expecting a big political showdown, and so what we get is a big religious showdown. People were expecting this huge conflict between Jesus in the Roman Empire, but instead it's Jesus and the religious leaders, and it's in their home court, the temple. Now, the, the temple, obviously, it's the, it's, it's the religious institution of, of Jerusalem and, the, and of, 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 of Judaism and, and, and the Jewish people. And there's layers to this, right? And so it, it was the primary like religious institution, but eventually became like the economic center of the city. 
And most likely, it started off as something like convenient, like uh, most travelers coming through, uh, coming into Jerusalem, were most likely there for a pilgrimage, you know, so they're going to pay, they're going to spend some time in the temple courts to worship. So because they're coming from foreign places, they needed to change, you know, for local currency, and with the local currency, they could buy whatever they're going to use to sacrifice, whether it's doves, goats, whatever have you, because, you know, Old Testament worship looked like a slaughterhouse, you know, so that's what they're doing, right? So they're getting ready for that. And eventually the system of this, all of this got exploited. Traders and merchants were taking huge profits off pilgrims. And some of the religious leaders, I don't think everyone, but I feel like a lot of them, most likely, were in on it, or at least they at least just allowed it because they benefited from it. And so it's in that place that Jesus enters. He enters the ring. And so what does this showdown look like? What we see here is that there's, there's both action and there, there's, some, there's also some teaching. There's proactive involvement and there's also some theological context. There's a work of advocacy, like getting your hands dirty, paired with the formation of the heart, mind, spirit, and soul. Now for some of us, especially in recent years, we, we know what it's like to be in the work of advocacy. Like we, we, we've been in those marches, right? Like some of you, we've, in, in the last year, we've been a part of those Black Lives Matter protests, right? After the death of George Floyd. Some of you, your, your work of advocacy goes like much deeper than that. And what, what we see here in Jesus is that the work of advocacy, sometimes it looks like straight up anger, right? And that anger needs to be expressed whether it is through marches and chants or art, or in this case, flipping tables and benches. And, and what we can gather here is that righteous anger, or some, or some of us may have heard it, righteous indignation is a part of our Imago Dei. The Son of God who embodies all things God, He is showing and expressing the anger, the righteous anger that He sees in injustice. So when we see injustice, we should feel righteous anger because our God feels righteous anger. But the, but the caveat for you and I, not so much Jesus, but at least for you and me, is that as Ephesians 4 reminds us, like in our anger, do not sin, you know? Because even like, to be honest, even sometimes, like, even the most genuine, well-intentioned advocacy can often end in hurt. You know, and I'm speaking that as like a missionary's kid. I've seen this firsthand in many ways. But what Jesus models here, he's not blowing off steam. He's not blowing off steam. This isn't a fit of rage. Instead, Jesus' actions here is a context of a larger narrative. It's a part of a larger teaching. Like consider this, like think about this. Like Jesus did this at the end of his ministry, right? So this is, and this is not his first time in Jerusalem. Like, the, the injustice that he's seeing in temple courts is like nothing new. Like, he's, he's grown up in this. He's seen this, right? Like, this is the same temple that Jesus spent so much time in that his parents were just left thinking that, oh, he might be somewhere else. But it turns out he was there in the temple this whole time. So Jesus is very, this injustice didn't just surprise him. Jesus is very aware. In fact, you, could, you might be able to make the argument that Jesus carried this righteous anger most of his life. So instead of this being a fit of rage, what we see is that his, anger, his actions 
is a part of a larger narrative, a larger teaching. The action and theological content go hand in hand. So much to the point that people who were there were amazed, not just at Jesus' Jesus's actions, but at his teaching. But that also left the religious leaders like really ticked off and wanted to kill him and stuff, right? So, so, so the question is, like, what is the core of his teaching? What is Jesus so passionately teaching about? And that we see in verse 17. My house, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is doing several things here, and so I'm just going to just go, go for it. Jesus is calling out both the systems of oppression and its leaders. He's doing it by combining two words from two prominent Jewish prophets, both Jeremiah and Isaiah, and the religious leaders, they are aware of these texts. They know the context, and they know and understand the separate meaning. So when Jesus combines these two, it's like fuel, and it feels like a different kind of anger, right? The anger that's like filled with hate and fear and jealousy and self-preservation, like self-preservation because that in, like, when self-preservation is about my life and my well-being is more important than yours, that's hate, right? Like, you're, you're valuing the other as less than, right? So Jesus is calling it as it is. He's essentially doing the same thing that he, he did to the fig tree. Jesus didn't place a curse on the temple. He's just calling it as it is. The temple is already has been a den of thieves. And the religious leaders knew it, and chances are most likely they are a part of it. So let's unpack what this den of thieves means, because that's a pretty harsh, harsh term. Harsh uh, accusation to call a, to label a religious institution, right? Like, it has actually, a, it's a double entendre. There's like two meanings, right? There's two meanings there. Um, first is that, as we talked about, like people are being ripped off. People are simply being ripped off. And here's, here's the hypocritical part. Like, remember how like most folks back in Jesus' time, the Jewish people, like, they really, they really didn't like a certain group of people. They're called tax collectors. Why didn't they like the tax collectors? Because they're ripping their own people off and serving a political entity that was opposite to them, like opposing them, that was pressing them. And here we have the religious leaders who are ripping off their own people. But here's, here's the crazy thing. The temple courts is the only place that the Jewish people had complete autonomy over. The Roman government said, hey, you know what? We will occupy, but with the, and part of our deal of this occupation is I'll give you free control of your religious system. You can do whatever you want in your temple courts. So the little power, the little power that these religious leaders had, they used it and they leveraged it for their own gain. It was a gross, blatantly gross abuse of power and authority. So that's the first thing that Jesus calls out. The second thing, second way how Jesus, or this is a den of thieves, is that they're robbing people, people, all people of their opportunity privilege and honor of being able to connect with God through prayer. This wasn't just for the Jewish people. This was a privilege for all people, Jews and Gentiles. Some of you know there's layers to the court obviously, but Jesus wasn't just standing up for his own religious system for the sake of his own people. He was standing up for all people from all nations, all tribes and all tongues. 
in some ways, Jesus in this text is contending for us. He's fighting for us. And so with all this said, there are two kind of two primary narratives in Jesus' teaching. The first is a summary of pretty much what we talked about. This is blatant critique of the leadership and power structures of ancient Israel. Jesus is angry because people are being kept from the temple. People are being kept from God's presence. Jesus is angry because people are being kept from praying. And that meant that they're being kept from being, having an engaged relationship with God. The system that kept people out exploited people. It was a, grace, a gross abuse of authority, power, and privilege of these spiritual leaders. And the anger that Jesus had was directed toward the systems and the people that kept um, others out. But that's not the end. There's another layer to this narrative, and that is already up there, that what is being robbed, God is restoring. What is being robbed, God is restoring. He is building a new house. Jesus is building a new house, a house of prayer for all nations. There's a new structure so that there will be a renewed context of relationship between God and humanity. God is making a home, a home where people from all walks of life can enter in because of the work that Jesus did. This teaching, this very teaching in itself, it is the gospel. Jesus made it possible for us to be in God's presence. Everything else that comes after that is a byproduct of the gospel, is a a residue of the work that Jesus did. The primary work of the gospel is that Jesus made a way so we could be in God's presence. So that we could be living temples, living dwelling places of God. That's the primary work of the gospel. And that is how he's building his house. And that is how he's building this nation. So that all peoples will be able to have the opportunity and privilege to commune with God. This is so stinking revolutionary. And... Um, there are a lot of emotions being stirred. People are amazed at this teaching. The religious leaders are getting heated about it, and the disciples and Jesus felt this heat. So, again, they leave Jerusalem. And here's the next day. 20, 21. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from, from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Again, back to the fig tree, right? So, interesting how, like, we, we know the story of Jesus flipping tables, and it's sandwiched by this fig tree analogy, right? So there's an importance here. There's an important thing that's happening here. In the Old Testament, there are two primary symbols for Jewish religious system. One is a temple, and the other is a fig tree. And according to the South Asia Bible commentary, which I leaned heavily on to study for this uh, message today, the temple is a symbol of God's presence with Israel, and the fig tree is a symbol of God's relationship with Israel. So what Jesus did the day before in the temple, and now here we see coming to fruition with the withering of the fig tree, is a collective symbol that God's relationship humanity is no longer exclusive to one nation, to one people group. But Jesus, God, is building a new house, a house of prayer for all nations. And this is what Jesus is building here. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we value and we want to fight in our church. We, we, 
We strive to be a church that is diverse, as, as, think as, as much as we can, because we see this value. Jesus fought for this. He stood for this. And we see, and we, we want to stand with Jesus with that, with that level of fervor. Um, as you can see, uh, if you've been around after church, usually our sons, my sons, my twin boys are flipping chairs. It's from this, you know, so they, um, <laughs> no, they're just destructive kids. Um, <laughs> um, so Jesus is setting this whole new thing up, and um, here's how he prepares his disciples for this new house. This next part, Jesus is like, hey, you see what, I think you get what's happening here. So here's how I want you to prepare for this new house that I'm building. And this next part, we're going to read. You've heard it, chances are you've heard it before, especially if you grew up in the church. But the context is within this, that Jesus is doing and building something new, that there's a new house that Jesus is forming here. And it goes like this. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. This is what Jesus responds to Peter. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, oh, did I read? Oh, okay. 24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold something against anyone, forgive them that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Interesting part about, I think it's in the Matthew um, telling of, or, or Matthew's story of um, the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer gets written out, and then after, instead of, you know, your, for your kingdom, power, and glory, it says this. It says this next part, like, pray that you, and like, forgive other people. Like, it's almost like, hey, by the way, when you're praying, forgiveness is a very important part. Right, and so, and we see the same thing here, right? So this is Jesus' kind of like setup, teaching like, as a, to prepare his disciples to build this new house. Jesus is building this new house, and the foundation is the work of Jesus. If that's the case, then its frames are set up by prayer. We cannot fully understand what it means for Jesus to flip tables without understanding the importance of prayer. Prayer is our relationship and engagement with God. And this is how he instructs his disciples for us to pray. In order for God to build this house, there has to be a systemic change. Something bigger outside of ourselves has to change. Say something like a mountain, for example. So Jesus is inviting us to pray for that. Pray for things that are bigger than us. It's like a hyperbole. It's a metaphor. It's saying like you got to pray with that type of fervency, that type of passion, that, that type of trust that is as good as done. But Jesus just doesn't end there with like, just pray fervently, pray passionately, pray with that kind of faith. But he also says, pray. Pray that when you build this house, that there's also an internal change. That not only something external has to change, but something also internal has to happen something that is internally, intimately close to your heart, like unresolved bitterness, guilt, and shame that we place 
on ourselves. Because when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, yeah, God definitely invites us to be peacemakers. To speak truth to power in this world that is broken and hurting. But God is also fervently and passionately, he also cares about you. He cares about your character. He cares that your faith is maturing. That as you continue to call out these injustices, that in the process you become more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That is how Jesus is building his house. Both go hand in hand. We speak against the big things externally, but yet we also speak for the big things internally. I think that's holistic gospel. I think that's holistic gospel. Um, I'm going to end with this. um, And I I apologize in advance that this is a little um, triggering for us and because um, I, I understand that this may not be a popular thought, but um, with all this Black Lives Matter that came out last year, you know, and um, it 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 was pretty amazing to see not only nationally but just the global reaction, the global response to this injustice. And there are parts of it I'm like, yeah, that's that's so God's kingdom. And there's a part of it that I'm like, yeah, let's let's do this. And um, some of you, some of us, we were like. Um, we're, we're partaking in those things, right? But in, um, in May of this year, in May of this year, you know, this is the time where in Israel they're going to have a big harvest. Um, some of us were anticipating another kind of harvest, and that was a harvest of justice. <laughs> and um, uh, I cringe when I say that, actually. I apologize. Um, but in May, that's when um, the... Uh, the verdict for the Derek Chauvin trial came out. And um, <clears throat> and I remember that day, Rayan was working, and um, and uh, we, we texted, or we, I think we called each other, and we just we talked about it, we just felt like there's, there's celebration, but there's also kind of heaviness, right? And I couldn't quite pinpoint what that heaviness was. And so I was processing this, uh, bring me before the Lord, and I think what helped was um, I saw a, a quote or a tweet of all things from Bishop T.D. Jakes, um, and he said, "Nobody won. Nobody won. Nobody won." And I think about just the amount of, and this is my confession here. I think about the amount of hatred that I felt. Or Derek Chauvin. And I think about the amount of shame that I felt when I saw the Asian brother standing there in that video. And um, I wanted nothing to do with them. But here's the truth of the gospel. And here's the part that's really unpopular. When God fiercely and wonderfully made Derek Chauvin, this wasn't his intention. This wasn't, this is a byproduct of the fall. 
So as, as peacemakers, we need to understand that. We need to hold that together. At the same time, we, we, we grieve, and we are still angered by what happened, right? Or what's happening. And I think that's the work that Jesus is modeling here. We do the big work externally, and we do it with passion and fervor. But with that same level of engagement, we bring our hearts before God. We, we repent of the areas that we need to repent of. We ask God to, the old song that I grew up singing was, change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. Let's pray. Um, um, I feel like there's a lot to process. I, I, I know I just said all this stuff, but I'm still processing this, like it's raw, you know? Can we just sit with this for a little bit? Is that okay? And then... I confess that like um, there are times I see you and I feel like you're like the most relatable person. Like I, I wanna I just wanna embrace you and 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 sit by you, you know, sit next to your feet. <laughs> and um, but there are times like this where I'm like, yeah, you seem so holy. <laughs> you seem so beyond me. Um And I think I'm glad that you are. Um, um, I, I thank you for this text today and, and the ways that um, remind us of our need for you even more. It, it reminds me of how self-righteous I could be. Um, how I feel like what I'm doing is so good and, and so right and so just. Like, um, yet at the same time, I, I know that you love me, you us, you love us so much that you you want to do a deeper work in me, um, in us. And, um, and in fear and trembling, we um, we ask that you'll see it through. Um, help us to be more, more like you, Jesus, um, so that we would see more of your gospel at work here. Um, we want to see more of your kingdom here. And uh, we want to do what you are up to, God. Uh, so we welcome it, we receive it. In your son's name we pray.
Elliot, thanks so much for that. That was uh, very powerful and insightful. Um, and I really appreciated just the, the context <laughs> that you gave even at the fig tree and just how that, um, that just brought su such depth <laughs> to that story. Um, you know, I was thinking, I, I appreciate the, the tension <laughs> that we see in Jesus so often. And, um, and in this story, just kind of seeing the tension of like the reality that, that God has this heart for justice um, and he calls us into that as well. Um, but there's also this, this tension that, like, it's not just about the justice. You know, I, I, think it's, I think it's possible to, like, pursue justice in a way where it becomes less about, like, God's restoration that he's doing in the world and building this beloved community, and it becomes more about our very natural, like, thirst for vengeance, our desire to, like, justify ourselves. Um, and I feel like I've kind of, I've kind of wrestled with that, like, even over the past year as there have been so many areas of injustice that have been highlighted, and, um, and I have a heart to, to, to see those injustices made right, um, but to also see where it's possible for us to kind of get to this place where we are only ever calling out other people and not like taking that look at our own hearts. Um, and just this past week, I was listening to a podcast um, and Mariah Humphreys, who is a native activist and educator, um, she was being interviewed on this podcast. And one thing that she brought up was that sometimes in, in areas of advocacy, um, what we see is that people are um, very, what's the word that I'm trying to think of, um, have a lot to say about areas of injustice that don't implicate themselves. But when it comes to the areas where they might be implicated, they're a lot more quiet and kind of want to stay away from those areas. Um, so that came to mind as Elliot was talking and just this, yeah, just this idea that, um, that when we kind of get to that place where we're just, just wanting to call out other people's issues and not taking a look at our own hearts, not taking a look at the ways that we participate in these systems of injustice, the ways that, that we might be building up hate and bitterness in our own hearts, then we have, we've missed it. <laughs> we have missed what, what Jesus is actually calling us to. Um, yeah, so, oh, I just really appreciate it. I feel like there's just so much, <laughs> so much stirring in me and, um, and so we're going we're gonna to move into a time of communion right now. Um, and as we do, as we kind of go into our liturgy, just want us to like keep these things in mind. You know, allow, allow the spirit to, um, to be speaking to us in the midst of us, to um, just to, to sit with that. <laughs> like, that yes, that God has the, this heart for justice. Um, but above all, he desires for each one of us to, to like heal and restore our hearts so that we can um, live in the way of justice.